Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which is available on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms. We're also on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 107.7 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today we're excited to be joined by Dr. Graham Walker a San Francisco-based emergency physician whose work focuses on healthcare technology and innovation. He's here with us for a discussion about his work, his online presence, his thoughts on the role of expertise in the misinformation age, and more. And with that, welcome to the program, Dr. Walker. Julian, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure, and we appreciate you being with us. So to begin with, let's talk about your current work, where your role is as an assistant physician in chief for technology and innovation. The past two years have been a reminder of how far scientific and technological advancements have come in medicine, from vaccine development, things like gene therapy, robot-assisted surgery, and so much more. So I wonder, from the perspective of a physician leader at a physician practice medical group, what does technology and innovation mean as it relates to your work? You know, it's a good question. All of those really kind of sexy, interesting topics of robotic surgery and everything is, is actually nothing near as, as exciting as those big major leaps with technology. The things that I tend to really focus on that I think help my physician colleagues and then by association, you know, my patients as well are things that just kind of break down barriers or silos or are inefficiencies in time that physicians have to spend. So making it easier to access information between hospital systems, for example, being able to see prior EKGs to compare the two, things that that just make it easier and faster to find information, gather information, and then kind of compile that information to use it in the care of patients. That's really some of the biggest innovations and improvements that we see. Similarly, switching to electronic health records, being able to go away from the age of paper where I had to actually, you know, call medical records and say, oh, I have this patient in the ER. Can I get their medical chart? And then trying to sort through literally a chart that weighs five or 10 pounds sometimes or is multiple volume, switching to one-click access to their EKG, their x-ray, their last clinic visit has been dramatically helpful, probably more than almost anything else in healthcare in terms of being able to get accurate information and up-to-date information for patients. Do you wish you could focus on practicing medicine without all the distractions? Covaris is here to help. As a leader in medical professional liability insurance with more than 45 years experience, Covaris provides insurance protection with data-driven predictive modeling to help you mitigate the risk of claims. By combining insurance protection with risk analytic services, you can reduce distractions and focus on improving clinical, operational, and financial outcomes. Covaris is reinventing what you should expect from your medical professional liability provider. Find out all Covaris can offer you at Covaris.com. That's C-O-V-E-R-Y-S.com. Insurance products issued by Medical Professional Mutual Insurance Company and its insurance subsidiaries, Boston, Massachusetts. We all know that process improvement when it comes to things like EHR and, as you said, communication between healthcare organizations and facilities or even other entities that may be involved in patient care and whole person care. Here in Virginia, one thing that we're doing across the Commonwealth is engaging, you may be familiar with the Unite Us platform, to really create those connections between different agencies that may be involved in caring for individuals, whether it's from a clinical perspective or connecting individuals in need with social services and support. So having that kind of connectivity is very important. So appreciate you drawing our attention to that work. 
one of the reasons that we invited Dr. Walker on the program is because we happened upon a Twitter thread of yours where you engage with some of the Joe Rogan vaccine controversy in a pretty thoughtful way, in a way that regrettably can be in short supply amid the histrionics that passes for so much of the content populating social media in the outrage era. And I do want to discuss that thread with you in a moment. But first, continuing on the theme of technology, and in this case, uh, social technology, as a middle-aged guy myself who's just old enough to be on the other side of the internet age, I'm always interested to hear the thoughts of younger people and engaging with technology as almost a primary language. In this case, from the perspective of you, someone who has a blog that's still available online documenting your time <laughs> in medical school and your process yeah, of becoming a, a doctor. And your thoughts on policy and that all of this stuff sort of lives on in perpetuity. And so I just, you know, wonder for from your perspective as sort of an active citizen of the online world, what are your thoughts just sort of generally about, you know, engaging with technology and, you know, whether it's medical Twitter or anything else? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I started that blog and I wanted to kind of be online was to kind of just show people that physicians are humans, that, you know, we're not these robots that are perfectly capable. And in some ways, I think some of our growth can be stunted by all of our medical training and years of studying. But, you know, I, I wanted to bring a sense of humanity and kind of paint the picture clearly of what it's like to become a doctor, like in my blog from many years ago, to now kind of more on Twitter, giving my personal perspective and my personal experience, my real kind of lived experience as an emergency physician with all the good and bad and happy and sad things that I've come across, especially since the pandemic began. I was, I would say, probably less active on Twitter. And then with the pandemic, have become more and more active as kind of a way to express myself, feel like I have a little bit more control and power over the COVID situation, that I'm at least trying to put things out there, trying to put out information that I think is as accurate and as realistic as possible when there are so many other podcasts and platforms like Joe Rogan that are spreading information that's simply just not true. So it sounds like in some ways you view it as a platform to give voice to opinions or views, in this case, opinions and views that are informed by science that counteract some of the, the misleading narratives that are out there. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I went into emergency medicine is I like the one-on-one -on -one individual patient care where I do feel like I can often really make a difference. I can take somebody that's got a bad stomach flu and, and get them feeling better, a bad migraine and make them feel better, a, a laceration, put them back together and send them home and fix them. I studied social policy in undergrad. I've always had this kind of other pull, which is pulling me toward doing something bigger for the kind of the greater good, not just impacting one person. And so I think I've kind of taken on social media as a way to do that, or at least have a sense that I have some control that at least I'm trying to put out the right information out there. You know, it, certainly Joe Rogan's got a larger audience and reach, but at least that information is out there. I did my best to put it out in a digestible, you know, easy to appreciate and understand and follow format. You know, I try not to write things fully at a medical level, even though most of, I think, my followers and the people that I follow are all in medicine. But I try to make things scientific, but not at the level that they couldn't be digested or understood by you know, someone that's outside of the medical field, too. There is, as you know, a body of research out there suggesting that online engagement, certainly if done to excess, can potentially have negative consequences for our health. I will confess as a parent that it's something that worries me with a son who is quite fascinated with platforms like YouTube and TikTok. I don't want to put you on the spot here, and we all know the adage, all things in moderation, but I just wonder, as again, as someone who engages on these platforms, and as I mentioned, engages in, in a thoughtful way, but also someone who views the world with a medical lens, you know, what advice do you offer to a parent like me? 
me or anyone else about, you know, making sure that, you know, it doesn't become all consuming, you know, whether it's for, you know, our children or other people in our lives? Great question. You know, I think the internet is forever to some degree. And I think society is trying to figure out that balance of people can grow, people can say things and have past mistakes and we're not perfect and where that balance should be, especially with social media and, you know, people saying things that maybe they don't believe anymore that they said 10 years ago and that they're you know, ashamed of or embarrassed by. But I would say people, especially young people, tend to be extremely sharing of their information. And maybe it's just a generational thing that, you know, your children's generation will understand that the norm is just that people share everything online. And I think right now the adults are still trying to figure out where the line is and everything. I think the other issue is that people tend to be more critical and nastier on social media than they would ever be to an actual Mm -hmm. other human in person, which I think is another challenge. I think people tend to interpret things more negatively, even if their intent is not negative. You know, I could say, gosh, I really love bananas. And someone on Twitter could say, wow, what a jerk. You didn't even mention that oranges are an important fruit for our economy. (laughs) You know, it can take something completely out of context. I saw somebody today even just say, one of the limitations of 280 characters is that a tweet cannot be all-encompassing for all things and for all people. And if you interpret everything as a slight against you or a slight against the way that you interpret things, you know, we're all just going to assume the worst about people if we only look at social media when there's actually so much good out there. And it's really easy to get upset by the one or two trolls or or jerks. But if you actually just try to look at things a little bit more objectively, you can see, you know, actually like 95% of people agreed with me. And then, you know, maybe 3% disagreed, but we're actually kind of polite about it and asking questions. And, you know, overall, like only one or 2% of all of the people that engaged with my Twitter thread or whatever, only a few of them were jerks and you can't please everybody. Yeah, no, I think it's a great message to, one, look for and see and recognize the good in the world, and two, be aware that things can feel more intense in the moment. But if we step back and take the long view that, in fact, as you said, you know, there are a lot of well-intentioned, well-meaning people out there, many of whom, you know, engage with content civilly, politely, even if they disagree with it. So it's good advice there. And I will certainly say, uh, as someone uh, perhaps a little older than you, that I am still, you know, as I look at my son and his fascination with online communities, I'm still in the bewildered and perplexed phase in in many respects. (laughs) It's a little bit the human condition. You know, I'll have a shift and I can have the best ER shift of my life. Everybody is so nice and friendly and helpful and I'm, you know, everything's just going smoothly. There's no weights at all for the CT scan or anything like that. And then I can have one patient that's just challenging for any number of reasons and it can ruin my day. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of it's just framing it and being able to not get so upset by things that are negative. Yes. Don't sweat the small stuff. Sometimes easier said than done. I want to talk to you about your firm, MD Calc. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, which, as I understand, is a program that provides access to medical scores and algorithms and calculations for the world's medical community, which I think you actually helped establish when you were in medical school with a a fellow resident of yours. I gather that that platform has grown significantly and is now in hundreds of nations. Can you just tell us about the program, its origins, and where things stand now? Oh, sure. Yeah. So there are a number of predictive scores and algorithms and kind of calculations that we do in medicine to kind of answer pretty specific questions. I'll give you one example. If your doctor is seeing a patient in their office and they get a chest x-ray because you have a cough, this is pre-COVID of course, and oh, it looks like you have pneumonia. 
you know, one of the questions the doctor may have is, gosh, should I send this patient home with some oral antibiotic pills? Or do I think they need to be admitted to the hospital because they're more likely to get sicker within the next few days, or they already look sick in my clinic? So we all have a numerous number of questions that are, are about either prognosing a disease or diagnosing a disease or the appropriate treatment for a disease or a condition or a symptom. And so MD Calc helps kind of answer those very specific questions. I have a patient with chest pain based on maybe some risk factors that I know about them, based on what maybe their EKG looks like, based on what symptoms or what vital signs they have today, what's their likelihood that they're having a heart attack, that they have a blood clot in their lungs, things like that. So it tries to provide an easy kind of digital tool repository of as many of these predictive scores as we can offer. We review them. They're all kind of in the public literature. We review them, make sure that they meet our kind of quality standards in terms of something that's reliable and valid, as we say, in kind of the medical literature, and then add it to the site with expert information on it as well. And and maybe five or eight years ago, something like that, we added iPhone and Android app. And now we're actually working with some hospitals trying to get our tool integrated into their electronic health records so that the doctor doesn't need to take information from the electronic health record and put it into our app or our website. It just integrates seamlessly. And if people are interested in that platform, tell them where online they can access it or find out more information. Oh, yeah. It's just at mdcalc.com. You know, we think a large number of physicians already know it and use it. And it's been around long enough now that we're kind of becoming the Kleenex of clinical calculators, if you will, in that, you know, when a medical student or a resident is learning how to calculate a particular score, often their attending or their fellow or, you know, their senior resident or something will just say, oh, we'll just go to MDCalc because we've become the the kind of go-to standard way for people to, to answer these questions, which is honestly really flattering. And it feels so wonderful that we're helping doctors take care of patients in, in like you said, least over 100 countries at this point. Always nice to be a household name. And speaking of, speaking of household <laughs> right. names, here's a segue for you. We promised that we would get to Joe Rogan. I don't want to belabor this or go deep down the rabbit hole other than to say that Joe Rogan is obviously a very popular and prominent podcaster. He, let's say he has a contrarian streak and will often present guests um, who will, let's say, challenge the, the official narrative or consensus opinion. One such episode, he had a physician and infectious disease researcher who raised some significant questions about the COVID-19 vaccine, stirring doubt or misinformation, some would argue, about its efficacy and its safety. This led to lots of finger pointing, lots of social media outrage, threats of boycotts, prominent musical acts pulling uh, their their material from Spotify, the platform that is Rogan's primary uh, host, if you will. Subsequent to that, this generated obviously lots of chatter and conversation bouncing around the internet. And you had a pretty lengthy thread, which as I said, was one of the reasons that we reached out to you because I found it to be both insightful, but also measured. And what you did was you sort of, in a methodical fashion, step by step, analyzed with timestamps different comments, different anecdotes, different utterances from this particular episode that some people took umbrage to and addressed some of the legitimate critiques that people had raised about why the information that had been shared was not scientifically valid, even while also acknowledging in one of the initial tweets in that thread, you said, listen, I get that people can legitimately say that information about vaccines has changed over time. And some of that is because our understanding of the science has evolved as we've gotten deeper into this experience with the pandemic. So with that set up, I just just love to hear your thoughts about what compelled you to do this and what message you were hoping to convey and what kind of feedback you got after you did that thread. 
Yeah, thank you. I will admit I have a contrarian streak too. If you look at the history of medicine, there's a lot of things that medicine has done wrong. And now we look at it and we think, God, those idiot doctors from 50, 100, 200 years ago. Now we definitely know the right answer. So in some ways, you know, I agree with Joe Rogan. The information changes and sometimes things that we thought were totally wrong and totally crazy actually turns out to be true. You know, one of the most famous examples is we used to do all these surgeries for stomach ulcers. We, you know, we thought it was all stress induced. And then a famous Australian doctor said, no, I think this is an infectious process, an infectious disease. He found some bacteria. Now we know it to be H. pylori. Found some bacteria, published it. People said, nope, you're wrong. It's a stress-induced illness. We need to cut out people's vagus nerve from their stomach and make them better. And so he, in a not perfectly scientific way, he drank a big flask of this H. pylori bacteria. And, you know, the story is almost immediately he had very severe stomach pain and developed a peptic ulcer and literally overnight changed decades of medical experts that were proven and sure of the cause of peptic ulcer disease. So I think contrarianism is a good thing to at least listen to. I would say I'm not nearly as conspiratorial as Rogan is, but, you know, when people were calling to boycott or cancel their Spotify accounts, I like to kind of hear things for myself. And I knew and, and know Dr. Malone's, you know, things that he has said online over on other podcasts over the past year or so. So I kind of knew what I was expecting to hear, but I thought, you know what, I'll listen. Maybe he's got some new information out there. I'll give it a try. And I mean, long story short, it was mostly recycled old information from, you know, a year plus ago that he was recycling for Joe Rogan. And really the thing that upset me enough to decide, okay, I need to like take a stand and I'm going to say something about this was really when he started to accuse physicians like myself, my hospitalist colleagues of essentially profiting from the deaths of COVID patients by fraudulently adding COVID to a diagnosis because we thought it would make us more money or putting people on ventilators and in the intensive care unit because it would make us more money. I mean, that, I mean, just talking about it makes me angry and makes my heart rate fast because it's just so offensive and so wrong and so unethical for him to both claim, you know, use his authority as a doctor in the same podcast as then he also accuses them of fraud for these pretty heinous things that um, we all took an oath to put the patient first. The thing that always fascinates me about that argument is it is undercut so much by the fact that clinicians here in Virginia and across the U.S. and across the world have gladly, willingly taken the COVID-19 vaccine. You know, so if, if there's this grand conspiracy and there is something about the vaccine to be mistrusted, why are the people that are on the front lines who are fighting this disease so willing and ready to take the vaccine? That's always where that argument's fallen flat for me. I will say thank you again for giving us your time today and sharing some of your thoughts. Before we let you go, I do have two lighthearted questions for you to give our listeners a bit of a sense of who you are beyond the work that you do now that we've covered some of the more serious stuff. The first is this, in the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on earth, what would your last meal be? Oh, gosh, Uh, that's a great question. It would probably be some home-cooked meal. My grandmother is dead now, but probably be maybe her fried chicken or her brisket. And then there's a shop in New York City, a Japanese dessert place that makes black sesame creme brulee, and it is my favorite dessert of all time. I have a terrible sweet tooth, so it's actually easier to come up with the dessert I'd want to have <laughs> at the end more than the food. Sounds good. Listen, a plate of fried chicken is never a bad thing. And then in that hypothetical scenario, at that meal, that last meal, if you could choose any person, living or otherwise, to join you for that meal, who would it be? Oh, man, that is a great question as well. Any person. 
I don't even know. I'd probably just say my husband. I don't have a very interesting answer. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. And then finally, to close us out, a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast. If you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself occupied? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? Well, I don't know if it's entertainment as much as it would give me some peace if I was deserted on an island. I really love Kurt Vonnegut and his very short book, God Bless You, Dr. Kevorkian, Mm -hmm. is just a really wonderful, it takes 20 minutes to read if you've never read it. It's a really wonderful take on kind of humanism and the joy and also the the weirdness of what it is to be a human being and to be alive. Uh, I'd go with that for my book. I'd probably have to go with one of the Beatles, maybe, maybe the Beatles anthologies, so I can get a little mix of some of their different albums. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember. They're certainly continuing my favorite band of all time. And then, gosh, a movie. Oh, man, that is extremely hard. I might go with Amelie, which is, you know, a movie from the mid-2000s. This is Amelie. With the discovery of a simple childhood treasure, she begins a quest to fix other people's lives. And perhaps her own as well. Again, just a little uh, slice of life quirky but happy thing to keep my spirits up while I'm trying to be rescued. Okay, well listen, as I said a moment ago, we appreciate you being with us and taking some time from your busy schedule to join us on the podcast. And with that, that's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are available. And we want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Graham Walker, for being with us today. So thank you, sir. Thank you so much, Julian. 